Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange would like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We would also like to pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Yambri peoples, past and present, on whose lands we are also recording this podcast. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you still from our bedrooms. I am your Familiar Stranger for today. My name is Carolyn West, and together with my Familiar Strangers, Alex DeLoya. Hello. Timothy Johnson. Hello and the lovely Catherine Allen. Hello. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. Now, I am not in Canberra, ever, <laughs> but especially at the moment. But I do understand that for the rest of you who are in Canberra, there's been quite a lot of protests going on this past week. Yeah, there definitely has been. Um, and one has dominated the narrative and the mainstream media, um, which is quite quite concerning when I think traditionally we see protest as a form of collective resistance, from, normally from people who are kind of outside the margins. So it's kind of interesting the types of rhetoric that are being spoken about at the moment. I helped organise a Sudanese rally, which marked just over 100 days since the military coup in Sudan. There was really, really hardly anyone there. But the federal police did manage to show up and there was almost a one-to-one ratio at one point of police to protesters. And I thought that that was exceptionally interesting um, when you kind of compare those images to the images seen outside the National Library um, when we had the groups of anti-vax protesters and things like that as well. I think it's increasingly worrying seeing how many different types of protests are being co-opted and seem to no longer mean what they used to mean. I suppose as someone who's so heavily involved in the process of bringing your protest to life, what kind of things are you seeing that have really changed for you over the last 18 months, maybe even just the last six? Yeah, I think that different communities are getting more involved now. You always go through a process where you need to alert the police, um, you need to mobilise people. And obviously in a COVID environment, that's already quite heightened and quite difficult. So we have COVID-19 protocols like face masks and things like that, which is all, all above board. But I think increasingly there's more suspicion from people that we would ordinarily say might support protest movements. And I do think a lot of that is deeply connected to the things that are happening um, in the far right movements in the US and in Europe and now obviously in Australia as well. So it's becoming less of a tool for people who traditionally don't have much of a voice to speak up 
and it seems to be going in a different direction, which I'm not sure about, and I'm I'm not sure what it means for the communities that I personally work in and work with as well. You know, you used to use a protest at was like your last last point of call. It was a moment of desperation because you can't get inside the rooms of the powerful people who make the decisions. It's it's a way of trying to make your voice heard when it feels like nothing is getting through. And so for movements like the people that I work with, so in the Sudanese community or in the Kashmir community, the refugee community, we also had a protest this weekend about the religious discrimination bill, which is being discussed and debated on Tuesday. All of these things we normally protest around in order to get some sort of media attention are now flying completely under the radar because the dominant narrative is so different around protest and the people who are inciting these are very different. So I think it means that there's going to be a lot more different tools needed to be used for activism and protest. And I'm interested to see what this means for people who are traditionally on the fringes of of society and activated in the margins. I think we do have to be careful of a bit of romanticization of protest after all. Like a lot of causes we would currently disagree with certainly had their day in the sun. I think that, um, you know, no doubt a lot of the protesters that have been protesting here in Canberra and, and elsewhere, like thinking as well um, about what's happening in Canada at the moment with um, the freedom truck convoys, you know, no doubt a lot of the people that are protesting do feel disenfranchised for various reasons. So, you know, I, whilst I'm, you know, not entirely sympathetic to their cause, I can understand you know, that they may be feeling disenfranchised because their views are not being listened to by those in power. You know, that's by no means do I agree with their views, but, you know, I think you could make the argument as well that, you know, it's part of, you know, a broader kind of phenomenon of people within society not being listened to, being disenfranchised for various reasons. What I think is interesting is thinking about the demographics of it is that there seem to be a lot of people at those protests who are not a group that we normally consider particularly politically active. We're seeing a lot of whiter middle-class groups, right? Particularly they seem to be, yes, somewhat through to upper middle-class, but working class. We've seen a lot of tradies last year, and yes, I know they weren't all tradies, but there were a lot of tradies and labourers and construction site workers. A lot of groups that we don't often associate with real, like, staunch political activism. And I think, to tie it back to what... what you got me thinking about, Tim, is that I think these are groups that are used to being heard. And so I think that's why across the world we're seeing a lot of this and, you know, it links into broader conservative countercurrents such as Trumpism and that. These are groups who, even if they themselves weren't politically active, they would see themselves and their views represented in the media. And what they're protesting about is quite dramatically different as well. And I think it's that's also another thing that's really interesting is I suppose when you've lived a life of reasonable level of privilege that the things that you think you should take to the streets for are wildly different and it, to a certain extent quite individualistic and I do wonder if that's again connected to this greater landscape that we're, we're living in and we're living through and the push towards, well I would say we live in, in a neoliberal democracy and this individualising of rights that has been going on for so long. I do wonder if that might be part 
part of what's happening because it's like I'm individually threatened whereas a lot of the movements that that I would spend my time in would say we as a collective are being threatened we as a collective are speaking for our collective rights and I find that contrast very interesting I think on some level it's about what communities do you imagine you belong to and in which you feel you have at least some sort of voice right it seems so long since I've been to a protest, I think, here in Australia, at least in Canberra, for like the last 12 months. You know, there's been various, I guess, protests over over the last little while. But I mean, I, I think the last protest that I attended was the March for Justice protest, which happened last March here in Canberra. And I think just, you know, reflecting back on what, what Alex, you said before, and the sense of solidarity in, in being there and being part of a community. And I think there's a real power in people mobilizing around these issues you know whatever they may be well to take a leaf out of alex's book on that note uh alex i believe you've been thinking quite a lot about nfts recently yeah because like i've had ben folds on the mind and like y'all don't know what it's like being male middle class and white and at the moment being male middle class and white means getting so many nfts advertised to you on twitter yeah alex um i think i also fall into that category and twitter has has also been um just throwing sponsored posts at me as well so you said you've been doing a bit of research on nfts and your your interest is peaked can you explain to me and the others what an nft actually is let's say the three things you kind of need to know it's a non-fungible token. Now, fungibility in economics basically means the extent to which one thing can be exchanged for another. So money, a $5 note is like the ultimate fungible thing because if I give you a $5 note and you give me back a different $5 note, neither of us are likely to really care unless one of us has like a real serial number addiction or something, ultimately fungible. Something like I'm looking at a drink bottle in front of me. That is when it's clean, relatively fungible i don't mind swapping a clean drink bottle once somebody's drunken out of it not very fungible because i don't want to drink from your gross drink bottle and at the absolute extreme of non-fungible i would argue is like a pet because if i give you my dog and you give me another dog we're not equal so the other thing is the digital age has been interesting for art and creators because theoretically most digital forms of art whether it's the written word music imagery video are theoretically infinitely uh, replicable right you can just right click and save that image to your heart's content and that has to borrow some like tech bro entrepreneur talk disrupted a lot of industries I'm whereby <laughs> thank you thank you the scarcity of say records even cds uh isn't there right like they can kind of keep printing records and selling records whereas once music's on the internet they can try and lock up the music through a variety of ways but also you can also save and i don't like to use the word steal but let's just say steal pirate that music or the image or the movie etc etc right so there's that so theoretically nfts are a way of making a lot of images music whatever non-replicable non-fungible you can't swap this photo even if it's identical for another photo theoretically the last bit you need to know is that in practice this locks it all up on the blockchain which is a tech ages to describe the blockchain basically just a big record kept by lots of different computers current forms of blockchain and i don't think any near future can't store the image so all that gets stored is basically a little note saying 
Alex DeLoyer is the owner of the image at the end of this link. And it just puts like a web address in, more or less. The NFT of the image though, right? Because the artists actually retain the full copyright still to whatever it is that they've produced, from my understanding. Oh, yeah. Mm. So this is where it starts to get wild. To be clear, no one, the, one of the fascinating things about NFTs is that no one quite knows what they're buying or selling at the moment. They have no legal status. Which is a copy of the original piece of digital art that was produced. Well, the thing is with digital art, like what, what even would be the original? By one definition, if I create a piece of digital art in Photoshop and then I upload it to a server so that it can be an address to be pointed to by an NFT, I could argue that that is already a copy and that the only original exists on the hard drive of that computer until that data gets rewritten. But even in sort of the age of physical media, you know, think of all of the sketches and prototypes that go into, you know, any painting that sits in a museum of any kind. I don't, I don't know if I fully believe that NFTs are disrupting the space for a couple of reasons. I think the first is because a lot of the time what we see with new technology is that it's not really doing anything new. And I think the word disruptive kind of insinuates that it is new. It's really just kind of like building on things that have already come before, like sort of patterns and behavior that we have been doing for ages that then just kind of get slightly reappropriated to the digital era. So, but the other thing that I have an issue with is accessibility. So one of the big pieces of discourse that you see on NFT Twitter all the time is how accessible it is, how it is breaking down the gatekeepers behind the art industry so that other artists can make more money. But there is a huge learning curve <laughs> to crypto, huge. There's also a monetary requirement, like in order to sell an NFT, you have to mint an NFT, which from my kind of understanding is putting that digital file onto the blockchain, which is what is taking up all of the computer server power, which is what people are using to sort of talk about the environmental impacts of producing NFTs. Minting an NFT can cost like $1,000. Like I don't have $1,000 just lying around to mint an NFT that may or may not sell for profit. Absolutely. But the crazy thing for me is that it's all in the quest of trying to make something that is theoretically limitless scarce. Like it is a way to create artificial scarcity. Mm. But with physical products, you can do that too. Like I can choose as, a, as an artist, I can choose to only ever release, you know, 20 prints of an image and I may never release them again. And I can still control the price at which they're printed at, like the production price, more so than I can if something is an NFT. Uh, and I can also control the price at which it's sold at. And if I have a bigger following and if I have, um, you know, people interested in collecting my works, those pieces are going to be more valuable. And that is essentially the same way that selling NFTs work. It's just that NFTs are, are a digital ownership. It's a digital gallery as opposed to a piece of artwork that you have hanging in your home. In my understanding of, I guess, price market kind of economics is that, you know, the, the medium of exchange has to have a number of features. And so, you know, thinking here about things like, I think there's like, there's portability, there's divisibility, there's convertibility, 
there's general ability and and the other one that i think we touched on earlier was legality which is perhaps questionable what does it say for nfts in terms of you know how we would traditionally understand these kind of market-based practices in some ways it's a bit of a test case as to whether that holds true i think it's pretty clear that it does so a lot of people will say nfts are just ponzi schemes like yes but it's interesting to sort of from my perspective to talk about why because in essence the nft because it gives you no, like we said, legal right currently as it stands. If somehow there was a huge change in copyright law and copyright law said, okay, whoever owns the NFT of this image now owns the copyright to that image, that would be huge, revolutionary and horrible on so many levels. But nevertheless, that's the sort of change you'd need to see for NFTs to have a big impact. If you like that image, it's a big problem on the internet. You can just right click save as you have that image. And NFT, as the technology currently stands, cannot stop that. I don't see any way in the near future it could stop that. So that means all you're doing is owning this token in the hope that somebody else down the line will pay more for that token. And the only reason that somebody else would pay more for that token is in the hope that further, further down the line, somebody will pay even more again and so forth and so on. But I suppose there are many things in life that we buy with that in mind. I mean, investment properties. Mm-hmm. Technically, you know, there are people that do just buy homes with the hope that they can then sell them for a greater amount of money to someone who also believes that in the future it will sell for a greater amount of money. I think that's why there's a huge overlap between like people spruiking NFTs at me and like venture capitalists and people who think they know what the future of the web is and all that because the way a lot of venture capitalists work is off that model. I wonder how much of like the semi-success of NFT culture is predicated off the back of our romanticization of the entrepreneur that has sort of come through in the last like 10 years, especially like pioneered by like Gary Vaynerchuk, for example. Like there seems to be a real almost, I would argue, like with the word fetishization of being the first, of being that sort of like risk taker trailblazer that comes through with a lot of the sort of conversations that I see on Twitter. And I do genuinely wonder how much that is tied to this sense of risk and entrepreneurialism and sort of freelancing, I suppose, as well. That, co- that does come into the artist space for sure. I think you're spot on. And you used a word a little while ago that I didn't pick up on, but I meant to mention, which is clout. I want to look at who's buying in. Who are the suckers that are going to be left holding all the cards when the Ponzi scheme collapses? Maybe this podcast is all about the people on the margins. I was like, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, maybe all the people who are buying this don't believe in the real economy. Just like the anti-vaxxers don't believe in democracy. What a way to wrap up the podcast. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Done. We're out. I don't think anyone can say anything better than what you've just said. No. Thank you for your contribution. That is a mic drop moment. Well, I guess on that bombshell, we can end the discussion of NFTs here, but I'm sure this won't be the last time that we discuss it here on the podcast because I have a feeling this is going to be a little bit of a hot topic, at least in my world and clearly yours, Alex, as well. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I haven't even got into like Greybarian theory of value yet. Oh, I can't wait. Maybe we should just do a podcast of you and I just talking about NFTs and you can do the economic (laughs) side and I'll do the photography side. Um, but that is unfortunately all that we have time for today so thank you again to Alex Tim and Catherine for joining us thank you so much Carolyn. Yeah, thank you thanks Carolyn today's episode was produced by all of us at the familiar strange our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fung 
Please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the familiar strange, not the strange familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers or YouTube videos <laughs> mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you'd like to contribute to the blog or have anything else to say to me or the other hosts of the program, please feel free to email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at us at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro, and a special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. Thank you.